You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 175 of season three, 240 of the podcast. Today is October 29th, Friday, October 29th, 2021, to be more exact. And I want to talk through the story of Joseph. It has been a interesting week at work. I'll put it that way. I had a two-hour meeting yesterday from 11 to 1. And I am still tired. I'm still very, very tired from that two-hour meeting. And after I jumped out of the meeting, I was very ready to get some air and run and grab some lunch and come back. And on my way back from getting lunch in New Raymer, I noticed a bit of a wobble on my rear driver's side tire. So I look in my rearview mirror and I see just <clears throat> ever so slightly a wobble there. And so I checked it out and <clears throat> wouldn't you know it, the spare that I put on Monday afternoon had broken off one of the lugs, just clean broke off the lug and all of the others were loose. So good thing I caught that. Otherwise, that could have been very, very bad, especially traveling at highway speed, have that rear tire fly off and hurt somebody, cause me to lose control. But the simple truth of it was that I just didn't have time. I did not, I literally did not have time to get my truck back to town. I tried Monday afternoon, right after I swapped out the tire. It was like 2.30 in the afternoon. It's like, okay, I'm going to go I'm gonna go back to Greeley and I'm going to get this spare swapped out, get my tire patched or replaced, get the spare swapped out because I don't want to be running on a spare while my alternate is out sick. And ended up getting called back because there was a, a bit of an issue with the PLC, one of the PLCs, I should say. And then Tuesday... Wednesday, both long days, both 10 hours, not counting the hour drive there and the hour drive back plus hour, actually hour plus back the past couple of nights because I come through Lucerne on my way home and I keep hitting this train just right that gets to Lucerne and it just stops, just stops on the tracks. And that's caused me about half an hour delay a couple of times now. I should find an alternate route. But in any event, my youngest son is under the weather. He's got just a really awful cough, his throat sore. He was just miserable all day yesterday. But before his being miserable all day yesterday, he was up pretty much the whole night the night before, which means that I was up a good portion of the night And my wife was up even more of a good portion of the night. And then going to 
work yesterday, having a two-hour jam session. Yeah. Feeling a little tired. Glad it's the weekend. Hopefully that sticks. But coming back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. I find myself thinking about the story of Joseph and talking about, moreover, the story of Joseph here recently. I've talked about it on the podcast. I've talked about it with friends and family I'm seeking counsel from. And besides that, I've named one of my sons after Joseph, Daniel Joseph, my fourth-born son. His middle name is Joseph. And there's a reason for that. When my wife was pregnant with him, it was a very, very difficult pregnancy. And if memory serves, I was working, oh gosh, was I working for Total Quality Logistics or was I working for Multicolor Corporation? I don't remember. One of the two. It was either a factory, a label factory in Batavia, Ohio, or it was a logistics brokerage in Milford, Ohio, but it's beside the point. Commuting back and forth to Cincinnati, neither of those job situations were good. Uh, In the one case, we had a shift lead who had been sent to anger management three times by management, no heads up before she took over. And before her, there were two lesbians who were awful. They would just sneak off, disappear. All of a sudden, you find out they were at Walmart or whatever, and they got fired. But shift lead with an anger management problem did not like the cut of my jib and decided she had it out for me and she was going to try and screw me over with every little thing that she could potentially write me up for. It was just, it was, it was ridiculous. It was insane. I went to HR, reported it, complained about it. Next thing I know, the department manager is on board as well. And before you know it, I'm out of there. That actually was the last time I was terminated from a job. There's only two times in my working life I've been terminated. Three, if you count a policy change with my first legitimate job after Lauren and I got married, worked for RNL Carriers. They changed the policy with regards to billing errors. <clears throat> and they had a certain percentage, right? It was like 2%. As long as, and I think it was, I think it actually literally was 2%. As long as 2% or less of your bills of lading were entered into the database with errors, then that was acceptable. And they had people who were in the department whose job it was to catch errors, to double check things. But they just realized that there's going to be a certain percentage of mistakes and we make allowances for that. And we just budget that. We budget that into our calculations performance-wise. Well, then top it off with the past two years, last two years rather, last two years of my working for RNL being from home, and I went from hourly rate of eight fifty an hour, if you can believe it, up from eight twenty five when I started, if memory serves, eight fifty an hour to being paid, I think it was twenty eight cents per bill of lading. Well twenty eight cents per bill of lading doesn't sound like a whole heck of a lot. If that's you know, if I'm remembering right how much it was. 
But the, the catch is I type very, very quickly. I, and back then, I typed 130 words a minute. Very, very quick. And then I, I bring everything home because there was an option to be a billing clerk from home and get paid per bill instead of per hour like we were at the terminal. And I said, yes, please. And I, I took a TV. I took a 27-inch widescreen TV, and I plugged that in instead of the dinky little 15-inch or 17-inch monitor that they gave me. And I built off of that. And actually, I, I set up a, a dual monitor system. They had everybody else working off of one monitor, I think. And I had dual monitors, something like that. So I'd ha- I would have the bill of lading image on one screen, and I would have the terminal that I was typing these bills of lading into on the other screen. And so I wouldn't have to scroll back and forth, switch back and forth. I could just use my... Yeah, you know, use use the one monitor to display what it was I was typing off of, and the other one to type everything in. And I got to be really, really fast. And I actually was the highest paid billing clerk in the company. I was told by the by my department manager. I don't remember her name anymore, but I was told I was the highest paid billing clerk. And I was making all of $28,000 a year the last year that I worked there, if that gives you any idea. That's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, bills of lading. But they changed the policy, and instead of 2% or less errors, it became a three-strikes policy. And talking with other employees, it's like, hey, this seems like they're trying to find a way to reduce headcount and it's just a game now like they don't want to just lay people off technically but they want people to just kind of eliminate themselves by making mistakes on these bills of lading and especially with myself having been paid per bill it's like I can't slow down to the point where I'm going to make zero mistakes at the current rate of pay and make that work I just can't do it and so I warned them, typed up a little email to the manager, supervisor, what have you, shift lead, all of the above. And I said, hey, like this is not reasonable. This is not tenable. I'm not going to be able to afford to continue working here if this is what it's going to be. And no change, no budge. But other than that, I was fired one time before that job by... A Ralph Vance in Hillsborough, Ohio, flooring installer for Tissett's Home Center. He'd been doing it for 30 years, very experienced, and great guy. Ralph was great. Ralph always treated me very, very nicely, except when his nephew decided that he didn't like me. His nephew was a 35-year-old man, 40-year-old man. Ralph was probably in his 60s. And Ralph's nephew, Brian, did not like me. He'd pick and he'd pick and he'd pick and every little thing. Everything little, every little thing, and I'm not talking about work. I'm talking about, you know, I'm listening to a sermon on my lunch break on the Cedarville University radio station, listening to a Vody Bauckham sermon. And that actually was like the day before I got let go is he was going off about how 
That sounded like Jim Jones. Jim Jones, the Heaven's Gate cult, the drink the Kool-Aid and kill yourselves guy. Vody Bauckham sounds like that guy. Really? Really? And he'd been doing that for months. Just every little thing. I would drink a Jones soda and say, I really like Jones soda. And he'd start picking at Jones soda. Or he'd ask what kind of music I like, and I'd tell him what kind of music I like. And next thing you know, he's running down that kind of music. That's not really music. And finally, I just, like, on the Vody Bauckham thing, I'm like, are you serious? Like, how? How is that? How does he sound like Jim Jones? And he ended up not having anything to come back with. He's like, I don't want to talk about this right now. And so I, to be honest, I called him a coward because I was just over it. I was fed up. I lost my cool. He was being a coward in my defense, but uh, Ralph let me go. And he told me when he, when he let me go, he says, it's nothing against you. If I had a son, I would want him to be just like you. You've done everything I've asked. You've gone above and beyond. You've worked really hard for me. You're doing great work. But Brian has done this before. When he doesn't like one of the people that I hire to be an assistant, he runs them off and he tells me it's either them or me. And I need him more because he's got more experience. So I'm sorry. I'm going to have to let you go. I can't do without him. And so that was that. You know, my wife's pregnant with our first son, Josiah. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter that I was out of a job. But it was for the best, actually. It was for the best that I stopped working with Ralph and moved on to other things. It was for the best that I moved on to a job with RNL carriers that involved me working from home, being able to work from home for the last two years of the three plus years that I worked for the company. That was fantastic. Working at the terminal for the first year and a half or so, I couldn't listen to audiobooks and sermons. This was before I knew that podcasts even existed, but I listened to sermons. I listened to audiobooks. I'd check out audiobooks from the library and just go through a lot of them in the course of a week. And it was for the best that Ralph Vance didn't work out. It was actually for the best that the billing clerk thing reached a dead end because I was too comfortable. I, I enjoyed working from home too much, and that was not a that was not going to go big, bright, beautiful places in the long term compared with what worked out. And my next job with multicolor, 12-hour shifts in a factory with a gal who's gone through anger management three times at the behest of the company and then decides she doesn't like you while driving an hour each way plus depending on traffic, while going to school full-time online with Kaplan University and finishing my associate's degree, by the way, while volunteering at church. It was good experience, and it was definitely for the best that that reached a termination point. I'm glad that I got that experience in the factory, and I am even more glad that I'm no longer there. Then I move on to... TQL and I'm working for this freight brokerage firm and the company culture is dishonest, manipulative, bullying, abusive towards truck drivers, dispatchers, 
And you got guys that are making really, really good money, and they're thoroughly dishonest. I'm talking lie to a truck driver that you've got a load waiting for him four or five states away or across the country coming up on Thanksgiving just to get him to take your load from point A to point B on the expectation that he's going to get a load going home once he gets the load for you to where it is you want it. And I couldn't be a part of that. I could not be a part of that in good conscience. My dad was a longtime truck driver. At the time, my brother-in-law was a truck driver. I had worked for a trucking company for three and a half years. I had no special beef against truck drivers. But here are these young guys, fresh out of college, some of them, fresh out of high school, others of them, some of them just young 20-something, early 30s, young bucks, never worked a manual labor job, a blue-collar job in their lives, but cocky to beat all. They know everything, and they have no scruples. And at a certain point, my being honest just didn't. It did not work. It was mutual. They didn't appreciate that I wasn't going to conform to their company culture, to their work group culture, to their way of doing things dishonestly, abusively, And I was not willing to conform because I couldn't respect what it was that they were doing. I couldn't have a good conscience and do that. And I worried that the longer I was going to stick around in that, the more tempted I was going to be to be just like them in order to make it. And so I left. And the next job I get is in oil and gas. And I thought, that's it. I have this weird, eclectic, as I say, resume and... Nobody's going to want to hire me in the oil and gas industry. I'm going to have to start fresh. I'm 25. I'm going to have to start fresh from scratch because none of these things go together. How does a billing clerk job fit with working in a factory making labels for detergent? And how does that fit with being a freight broker or any of the other smaller jobs? I had a job in high school as a personal fitness instructor for three years, part-time job, wasn't allowed to work over 15 hours a week, seven fifty an hour. Loved that job, by the way. But how does that fit? And how does doing flooring installation with Ralph Vance fit? You're here, I'm 25. The economy has gone into recession. My wife and I have young children. She's stay-at-home. We've talked about it. And we did try. Like, we thought for a little while, maybe she can work and I can work. And so she got her STNA, state-tested nurse's assistant uh, certification. She had been uh, in a program, a nursing program at CW University with the intent of becoming a, a CNA. And she would have been a fantastic one, by the way. She would have been absolutely fantastic. But there we were. And I thought, at a certain point, no, honey, I need to do this. You need to stay home with the kiddos, and I need to work. And we tried it. I mean, we we did. We tried her working part-time when I was having a hard time finding work. Then she would work, and I would work a little bit, and she would work a little bit. When I was working from home as a billing clerk, then obviously I'm able to watch the kiddos to some extent while she works at the nursing home as an STNA. And it was 
It was very difficult. It was a very difficult time. But then I get into the oil and gas industry and all of the things that were just like, yeah, whatever, so what, in southern Ohio, hey, I have all my teeth, so what? Hey, I don't do drugs, and I have never done drugs, ever. Like, you could have drug tested me any time in my life, and I would have passed with no trouble. Hey, I have never been arrested. No criminal record, no felonies, right? Plus... I had experience doing data entry. I had experience working with the public in a customer service capacity. I had experience doing manual labor, working with machines. And I had experience working with truck drivers and trucking companies and handling logistics and prioritizing and communicating. And so I've done all these things. And to my delight... I get this interview for a lease operator position. And it's like, hey, all these things, all these things that you've done, we think those would be really useful as this. Uh, Yeah, I agree. $23 an hour? That's three times as much as I made in high school. That's almost two and a half times what I made at the label factory. Yes, you know, and then I get in there and I get started in my supervisor. I remember I remember talking with Keith about what I had just gotten myself into day one. He and Oliver, uh, what was his name? Oliver Smith or something like that. Keith Bailey and Oliver Smith, I think, took me and another guy that had just hired on as a lease operator out to the field to check out some sites. And they were going to kind of do a walk down. Hey, here's what it is. This is this, this is this, this is this. Here's your job. Here's your orientation. And I remember Keith saying on the drive out there that when he got started in the oil and gas industry, you had to be aroused about for a long time before you could even be considered for a lease operator opening. Like a long time. And so I thought to myself, if you're telling me in Farmington, New Mexico area, that it might have taken 10 to 12 to 14 years of being aroused about. Turning wrenches, filling up grease zerks, switching out dumps to even be considered for what it is that I'm doing right now, then I count myself exceedingly blessed, exceedingly fortunate for this to be my first experience in the oil and gas industry. Yes, I had an associate's degree, which is... Something that not everybody who gets into the oil and gas industry at that level, on the field level, can say. Yes, I had some eclectic experience. That helped. But it was the Lord's favor, in my view. So I want to read for you Genesis 37. And I want to talk briefly about this with the time that I have left for this episode. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. 
But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here, in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. 
Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That is the reading of Genesis chapter 37. I would encourage you to pick up where I'm leaving off, read the rest of the story. But I want to highlight a couple of things here. Thus far, where is any reference to God explicitly? Do you catch any references to God? No. Nope, this is all, humanly speaking, just the, the facts. This is the story. Here's what the setting is. Here's who the characters are. Here's what happened. This is leading up to what it is that God will do. God does. And what I keep thinking about is how in my circumstance right now, at present, I can have difficult situations to navigate. Hostility, challenge, stress. And it feels a lot like this. It feels a lot like Joseph. It feels like, you know, I I could say in place of a coat of many colors, I redecorated my office at Jackson Lake Gas Plant. I was given permission to do it, but I did it. And it's nice. It's got a Evo desk that goes up and down. And it's got cable management. I can stand at the desk. I can sit at the desk. I've got a nice Serta office chair, just like mine at home, only white and not tore up from children hanging on it at weird angles. I've got a coffee table that I bought from one of our operators who used to work at Centennial, the other facility that I initially was based out of. He's since moved to Oklahoma. But I bought a Live Edge waterfall-style coffee table from him that he made. It was the first one he'd ever made. Bought it from him. That's in my office. I bought a futon, which I know what you're thinking, Garrett. Who has a futon in their office? Well, people who are trying to make very expensive PLC and HMI programmers, integrators, comfortable while they work, while you have a meeting to talk about the scope of a project. Those types of people have a futon in their office. The types of people who have had a dozen all-nighters in two years, literally work all through the night, sleep in your truck before you go home, Those types of people might want a futon in their office if they can swing it, if they get a broad mandate giving them permission. Yes, you can get new furniture. That's part of the terms of you switching plants with your alternate. So I get a futon, and then it's in there. And actually, it was the the idea of one of the operators at Jackson Lake. He saw this bare wall because I had moved all the furniture out except for a little filing cabinet. All the three desks, there were three desks, which is three times as many as 
what was needed in there. And they were all too small. Not a one of them was the right size, and there were three of them. So I moved all three of them across the street into the loft, and they're a thousand times better. And everybody who's seen that up there and told me what they thought of it has said, it looks really great. This is really fantastic. I bought eight industrial strength shelves to put up there, organized our inventory, pulled things in from all over the plant, got got things out of my truck, got things out of some of the other buildings, put them up there, put those desks up there, space them out. This station's for soldering. This station is for powering up instruments and connecting to them to configure them, troubleshoot them, whatnot. Because I got monitors right here. I got a docking station right here. Plug my laptop in. Here's a vise. Put the instrument in the vise. Run the power supply cables to it. Push it on. It's great. Here's a test bench for our PLC with a spare chassis, power supply, and processor plugged in. And a desk right there. One of the desks is right there. And you can sit there at the desk with your laptop and program the module, the control module, before you put it in. Make sure everything is as it should be. You could play around a little bit with programming. We could throw some other modules in there, move the vise over, hook up an instrument, just play around with little inputs and outputs just to try things out. That was the vision. So I had a bare wall in my office. One of the operators, young guy, Sam, he walks in. He's like, you know, it'd be great right there. I'm like, what's that? A futon. You should get a futon. I'm like, yes, that's a great idea. Well, he's like, uh, you know, I was, I was kidding. I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't be kidding. That's a great idea. So for not much more than the cost of an office chair, certainly less than two office chairs, with three desks in there, there were three office chairs in there. But for not much more than the cost of one office chair, certainly less than the cost of two office chairs, I bought a futon and I put it in my office. And then my futon's there and this coffee table that I paid for with my money is there. And I think, you know, it would be really good is to have some lamps. I'll have get some inexpensive lamps that are also shelves that are also charging stations because I need to charge my phone from time to time. When we have contractors come in, they need to charge their devices. Sometimes I like to charge my power tools, have a little station right there. I can pull it out of my cabinet, plug it in. But that office, all this is to say, that office is my coat of many colors. And apparently, I found out yesterday, apparently everybody in the company thinks it's just ridiculous that I've got a futon. I've got a couch, actually. That's, I have a couch in my office. Who told you you could get a couch in your office? Da, 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 da. Well, here's the thing. I can explain this, and it makes a lot of sense. And yes, I got creative, but you should be celebrating that instead of scolding. Because here are my reasons. And... I realize you don't approve because you don't have a couch in your office. You don't have a futon in your office. I realize you don't approve, but you don't do what I do. You do not have the job scope that I do, 
and I, looking at my job scope and what it is that I needed to do, got creative in trying to tackle it in a multifaceted way. I was handed a very hostile situation with a plant manager who had a lot of complaints against him that he was harassing employees and contractors both. So you tell me I can rearrange my office, I can get all this stuff out of here and I can start fresh, make it like I want it to be, get new furniture. That's what you said. Okay, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to get furniture in such a way to make this office, my office, comfortable and welcoming and smart looking and professional looking to where when anybody, employee, contractor, it doesn't matter, anybody walks into my office, they immediately feel at home. They immediately feel like they can talk freely about what is going on. What are we working on? How are we doing? How are we going to go about this? You walk into somebody else's office and it's dusty and it's sterile and it's boring and it's a mess. And that's fine, right? You have no problem with that. Walk into mine. It's clean. It's smart looking. I did not spend a fortune. I spent a little bit more, a little bit more than what you might have wanted me to, but you didn't give me a budget. You gave me permission. And I took the permission that you gave me. And I'm not apologizing. (laughs) I won't do that again because I can't fit two futons in my office. But long story short, that office, my office, is my coat of many colors. My professionalism makes my brothers hate me and want to kill me. And just like in the story of Joseph, you've got this scenario where he's got dreams, right? He literally is waking up from dreams in which metaphorically, symbolically, his brothers and his parents are bowing down to him. Now, if those dreams were reflections of his subconscious, his ego, what he thinks of himself, what he thinks of his family, moreover, then you might understand why his brothers are upset with him, why they're angry. Not that it justifies them wanting to kill him, but you might understand his being a little bit irritating. When those dreams come from the Lord Almighty, however, when those dreams are a foretaste of what God's plans and purposes are for Joseph, well, that's a whole different story. That's a whole other ballgame. And based on the way that his brothers were going to dispose of him when they saw him coming at Dothan, their first thought is not, what is God doing in this scenario? (laughs) Hey, let's murder him. I don't think you're even considering that the dreams Joseph has had are from the Lord, that the Lord has plans and purposes for Joseph. Don't even think that's entered your mind. And yet... The best of them, the best of Joseph's brothers, whittle it down into, let's let's throw him into a pit. And then another brother's like, you know, got to thinking, what would be better than killing Joseph would be selling Joseph. We can make him go away, but if we sell him, then he goes away and also we get money. And I like money. Don't you like money? Yeah, I like money. I like money. No way. So you get this scenario in which Joseph is sold into slavery to the captain of the Pharaoh's 
guard. And I've been reading Puritans here lately, and I've been talking with friends, trying to get advice on what to do with my work situation, and trying to think about it in a godly way, and trying to be measured, trying to be circumspect. And even if my feelings are correct, even if my feelings are correct, that I feel like Joseph, I feel like I'm in that kind of a scenario. I've provoked the ire of my brothers because I've got a coat of many colors. And they don't like it. Hey, I don't, why didn't I get a coat of many colors? Even if I am Joseph. <laughs> and this is my coat of many colors. And I've dreamed dreams. You know, I've, I've tried to be very tight-lipped in terms of where do I want to go with my career not that anybody asks me for over two years. Nobody's asking me, where do I want to go with my career? It's all I can do to hold on to my current job because I'm too easy of a scapegoat for some folks. Other people like me. Actually, I would say the majority of the people I work with like me. I get along with them. There's a mutual respect. There's a rapport. Actually, I got a call from an operator who's no longer with the company just yesterday, and I need to call him back because I was going to call him back. And then I got called out to the other facility to work on some issues with a loading rack. But I have a good relationship with most of the people I'm working with. It's just a few. It's a few people who really don't like things like Joseph's brothers really don't like things. Joseph has a dream or two, and he has the audacity to share his dreams with his brothers. And because it bruises their ego and offends their pride, and because they're already angry and resentful towards Joseph because Joseph is daddy's favorite, they decide they want to kill him. Seize him. He's there on dad's business. Dad sent me. Ooh, don't you say that. Don't you dare say that. It's just another reminder that you're daddy's favorite. I don't want to hear that. Do not want to hear that. Give me your coat. We're going to tear this and rip it, and we're going to smear it with blood. We're going to take it to dad and tell him that you had an accident. But here's the catch. You know, for all of, for all of that, all of that is biblical. And as a Christian, I read this, and I believe this all literally happened. I don't believe this is allegory, symbolism, first and foremost. I believe this really happened and that God orchestrated these events because that's one of the things you can do when you're God. He orchestrated these events in such a way as to give a foreshadowing of what it was that he was going to do in Christ. Joseph here is a stand-in for and a foreshadowing of Christ. He's a type of Christ. Joseph's brothers would rather murder their father's favorite and lie to their father about it than submit to Joseph's eventual leadership, supremacy. So also, Jesus is arrested on false charges, trumped-up charges. He's given a kangaroo court trial, beaten, flogged, and ultimately crucified. In the story of Joseph, it gets worse because once he's sold into slavery, yes, he does really, really well. And I can relate to this. He does really, really well initially. He's doing so well. His master worries about nothing when Joseph is on the job. Joseph is the man. Joseph gets it done. Joseph gives me status reports. Joseph pays attention to details. 
Joseph, I can trust putting him in charge of the entire household. Joseph, you just run this. How about that? Starting so well, doing so well. Integrity, work ethic, good attitude, honesty, excellence. He brings all of the reasons why he was his father's favorite with him into Potiphar's house. And he's excellent. And Potiphar's wife sees him and wants him. She wants him to be her boy toy. And he refuses because, again, he's excellent because he's got integrity. It would have been so much easier for Joseph if he had had no scruples, no integrity, no fear of the Lord. So much easier. He turns her down cold several times, over and over. It gets to be where it's a daily thing. Come sleep with me. Come sleep with me. Sleep with me. Sleep with me. Sleep with me. No, no, no. No, 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 no. She takes hold of him one day, urgently. You are coming with me. And he is in such a hurry to get away that he runs right out of his cloak that she's holding on to. She's so determined to have him and he's so determined to not be had that she has his cloak and he flees the house. And she is a woman spurned. Hell hath no fury like a woman spurned. And she claims that he tried to rape her, which is not true. It's actually pretty much the opposite. She was trying to either rape him or sexually assault him, however you want to put it. And he's the one who ends up going to prison (laughs) for a while. But God's not unaware of that. And God is not negligent or forgetful or apathetic. And there's no indication whatsoever that Joseph was angry or bitter. He toys with his brothers a little bit when you fast forward and he's pulled out of prison because he interpreted the dream. I mean, even, even in the prison, he's being excellent. Even in the prison, he's looking out for the people around him. And he interprets the dream of the Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. They both have dreams. They both dream dreams. He hears about it, and he gives an interpretation from the Lord. And one of those men ends up being put to death, just like his dream and Joseph's interpretation of the dream said he would be. And the other one ends up being released and put back into service for Pharaoh, just like he dreamed, just like Joseph interpreted his dream. And fast forward, that guy forgets about Joseph until Pharaoh has a dream he's trying to interpret. Nobody can interpret it for him. And, oh, by the way, I know a guy. His name's Joseph. I met him in prison. He interpreted my dream and the other guy's, and it happened exactly like he said it was going to happen. Joseph gets sent for, and all of those years of integrity and excellence and trusting the Lord and waiting on the Lord and being diligent and not being bitter, all of those years lead up to this moment, for one, wherein he's standing before arguably the most powerful man in the world who is troubled because 
He had a dream he can't interpret. He doesn't know the meaning of this dream. I don't know what this means. I just know it means something, and I'm not sure what, and I'm bothered by that. So he interprets the dream. Seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine, and you need to invest those seven years of plenty to save up for the seven years of famine. It's almost like the oil and gas industry's boom-bust cycle. It's going to be booming, and then it's going to bust. And if we're not ready for the bust, a lot of people are going to starve to death. There's going to be a lot of suffering. Pharaoh hears this. He says, this is, this is great. Thank you. I got an idea. How about you be in charge of getting us ready for the seven years of famine? So you fast forward seven years, and everything's ready. Famine hits. Egypt has stores of grain. Egypt has food. So everybody all around is coming to Egypt to buy food, including Joseph's brothers. And Joseph sees them and he toys with them. It's the only indication I can see in the whole narrative that Joseph was ever bitter, angry, resentful. He might have played with them a little bit because they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize that this was their brother. Probably a little bit dude added up looking like an Egyptian, looking like a pharaoh, dressed in the current fashion, maybe some eye makeup, maybe the false beard. But once Joseph reveals himself, his brothers are terrified, rightly so, because it's like, oh, crap. Now we remember those dreams that he had years and years ago, and sure enough, they came to pass. And also, we remember, and surely he remembers, what we did to him. And he's in a position where he could end us. He could have us all sold into slavery. We never see our families again, just like we did to him. He could have us all put to death, just like we were talking about doing to him. And what is it that Joseph says? He says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. God used for good. And that's what I keep reading in Jeremiah Burroughs and John Owen, now in Jonathan Edwards, reading these Puritan preachers and pastors and teachers and theologians. They keep coming back to this theme that God uses even wicked men, even unfair, unjust, dishonest, capricious, cruel, unfeeling, ambitious, ignorant men in our lives as instruments to improve our character, to test our faith, to grow us, to maneuver us into position, to accomplish for his glory, his plans and purposes, so that he is always faithful and true. And so that all know that he is the most high God. God could have intervened at any point in that whole story of Joseph. He could have intervened and slapped the mouth of Joseph's brothers, when they start talking about killing him, don't you touch my Joseph. God doesn't do that. He lets it play out. God could have intervened and had those slavers that bought Joseph from his brothers release him just as soon as they were over the next hill. But God didn't do that. God could have protected Joseph from Joseph's master's wife by making her just 
not interested in him at all. Nah, you, you don't want Joseph. Nah, no. But God doesn't do that. What God does instead is he intervenes to protect and to bless and bring things to pass, in part through dreams, actually, which is quite a brain teaser. But God brings things to pass in such a way to where it's so extraordinary. The reversal is so extraordinary. The way things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose is so fantastic that you have to know that only God could orchestrate it. And that's the point. That is the point. And that isn't to say, and just to be very clear before I wrap up, because I got to go. But that is not to say that in my circumstance, God's going to reverse my situation tomorrow in five years and 10 years. And you're all going to say, wow, you know, that's fantastic. It's only to say that God's purposes, whenever his timing is, God's purposes are good and true. So if that's tomorrow, if that's five years from now, if that's 10, 10 years from now, if that's after I'm long dead and gone, God will keep his promises. He will be faithful. He will get glory for himself. No ifs, ands, or buts. And that's what you focus on. When you're dealing with difficult people, when you're dealing with people that maybe are motivated by jealousy, ambition, envy, spite. When you're dealing with scenarios wherein you're not being treated fairly, don't question God's goodness. You should be asking, what good thing is God going to do? How is he going to keep his promises? Not, is he going to keep his promises? Not, is he going to do something good here at some point and work this to good? Not, am I supposed to do anything? What am I supposed to be doing? How does God want me to represent him in this situation or in the next situation that this is preparing me for? But like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.